The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Welcome to the Echo Chamber. This is Arthi Shaw, one of the editors at The Homes Report, and I will be the host for today's episode, which will feature two of our Innovation Sabre Award judges in North America. But the conversation will be about much, much more than that. Um, first, we'll have Kyle Artiga on the show. He is Kyle is co-founder of The Bullet Group, and he's going to talk about what innovation even means in today's environment, both with media and other stakeholders. And then we'll have Proof Analytics CEO and founder Mark Stoos on the show, and he's going to talk about a survey that Proof did earlier this year of more than 400 C-suite executives around marketing, comms, and ROI. Um, and so there's some some good insights to be gleaned from there. But first, we'll start with Kyle. Welcome to the Echo Chamber, Kyle. Thanks for having me on. So we, I should caveat this with, we just did our first judging panel for the Innovation Saber Awards North, North America 2019, and Kyle was one of our judges. Um, so fresh off the back of that, we decided to have a conversation about, about innovation. Um, well, uh, let me first ask you your thoughts on, you know, you, you looked at, you just, we just talked about 50 entries. Is there anything that has stood out to you from an innovation perspective in terms of what you're seeing, um, <laughs> what you're seeing with campaigns, um, like what, what kind of innovation were you seeing with the work? A couple things. So I think first, there's always room for PR 101. You know, really make sure that you've covered every base. Make sure that if you're having an event, that it's it's 3D in nature, it's experiential, that social is covered, that everything is, you follow the template cold. You know, that's table stakes. You have to do that. But what I was really impressed with is the authenticity of some of these campaigns. You know, maybe it didn't move the needle. Maybe you didn't sell a thousand more units of a million dollar product. But what you did do is you got 5,000 people into a warming hut to talk and to commune like they used to in the middle of, of winter. You know, that's, that's kind of what PR is supposed to be, is to build a community. And that community can be small or large, but it's an important community. And you should be really thinking about ways to do this. Not everything needs a big budget. Yep, and uh, that wasn't specific at all about any of the entries that we just saw. Absolutely not. <laughs> and um, it, it's worth giving the caveat that you know we were just talking about a few categories that that you reviewed, um, but I think those were some some interesting notes. And I, this is something that I reiterate all the time with judges, but this is a good a chance of any to reiterate it. How much did the way that the the entry was formatted and whether it had visuals and whether it was a good story? How much did that factor into your 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 take? Uh, you could have had the best campaign on the planet, and if formatting was not taken into consideration and there was not a visual, I'm sorry, I, I can't help but score you down. Okay. I can't help but think that you might have actually had a better campaign. In a lot of cases, I think there were better campaigns than the way it was presented. But if you didn't take the time into presenting it and think about the intended audience, which in this case is the judges, I'm sorry, you missed a beat. And and there there you have it live from a judge. Um, it's just something that we always like to reiterate is that um, how you present your story definitely matters. Well, it's just like typos and email. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. 
So, all right, so then moving, shifting gears a little bit to more broadly innovation, um, I'm curious to hear from you because you work with so many innovative clients that are disrupting some established sectors like, like, the, like the automotive industry. Um, what are the innovation stories that are resonating with the media right now? Like what narratives are they gravitating towards? So uh, we were just having this conversation. Uh, the narratives that the media tends to be gravitating to, at least in the tech sector right now, are oddly things that um, you could argue the tech sector wouldn't even consider several years ago. And those include tech and policy and tech and culture. And by culture, I mean like popular culture. What is tech doing for popular culture? Uh, what would be an example of that? Like, like, are we thinking like Spotify? I think an example of that would be, there's a perfect example, the new screen time application on Apple. So Apple is actually systemically trying to get people to not be as addicted to their phones. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen that before. You know, this is the first time Facebook is actually publishing a metric of how much less engagement they have as a good thing. And is that, I mean, is that part of this larger narrative on the back of, you know, a lot of, you know, Facebook's various scandals of this sort of backlash to our digitally connected life? I think that's definitely a backlash to that, and I think it's also an understanding of comms people and marketing people and business people that we've probably gone as far as we can go. We can't get more addicted. Unless we're literally going to plant the phone in our arms, which maybe some people thinking about, like, how much more closer can we get well, to it? I mean... Google Glass, right? I mean, we could we get to come back with with the eyewear where you're where you're constantly seeing the world through through your through a device, right? Um, I mean, so I mean, I don't know. I mean, have we really hit rock bottom for that? I mean, <laughs> we certainly haven't hit rock bottom, but I mean, we're pretty darn close. Yeah, it certainly feels that way. I mean, when was the last time you went out to dinner and you didn't see kids on devices everywhere you turned? Mm -hmm. You know, and I told as a parent, I get why they do it. Yeah, mm -hmm. we know it's bad, but sometimes you succumb. Yeah. And so I think we all have to have part of behavior modification. I mean, mm -hmm. look at the opioid crisis. That mm -hmm. came because people didn't know how to manage pain. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of other ways to manage pain. Mm -hmm. But we just fell into the, the trap of, of prescription uh, medicine. So I think that that's, it's very smart for, for companies to be thinking about it. But I don't know that they're all doing enough. I mean, do you think that there is there will actually be behavior change on the back of this, or do you think this is more a narrative right now of you know questioning our our addiction to our digital devices, or do you think there there is actually a movement for behavior change, and do you think we'll see consumers engage less with their digital devices? So I think on the on the company side, they're doing it because they have to, and they're almost doing it preemptively because they know that if they don't regulate themselves, that the government's going to come in and regulate them or try to regulate them themselves, mm -hmm. especially in the EU. You're seeing the EU really flex their muscles as far as what they can do to companies. Um, there is a movement. It's not led by the companies, though. It's led by actual consumers, and it's, it seems like it's coming from the coasts. Mm -hmm. um, I guess you can question what the impact will have on the larger society, but it certainly is being led by well-educated people with some disposable income who see a, a better a better path. So oddly though, I think it's worth pointing out that these are also the same people who tend to populate these same companies. Yeah. So mm -hmm. there's a double standard there. Mm -hmm. So 
Well, let's talk about the Facebook narrative that's dominated. I mean, it feels like this entire year, starting with Cambridge Analytica, I mean, well, actually, you think about the aftermath of the election, right, with, with the Russian interference. I mean, what's been the ripple effect of having this sort of this really dark Facebook story dominate the, the tech news cycle for the last two years? Has there been a ripple effect in terms of how the media engages or thinks about the industry as a whole? Uh, there absolutely has. I mean, there's a couple things you can look at. First, you can just simply look at the stock prices of the tech stocks. Uh, you can't argue that billions of dollars, I mean, you can't turn on the TV without hearing how many billions Jeff Bezos lost now. Of course, we don't feel sorry for him because he's got plenty. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's a lot of market capitalization that's disappearing. That's number one. The second thing is just look at how the media covers tech these days. There was a point when you really wanted to gauge the media, we're seeing a lot of people batten down the hatches. There's a lot more investigative journalists. You know, there's certain journalists that if they call you, you're reluctant to call back. You know, it's, yeah. not, mm -hmm. it's not the free-for-all, pitch anyone openly, say everything that you want. It's more carefully constructed, is this person on my side? Will they take the time to really listen to me? Do I even want to be in the press? Like, we're spending a lot more time convincing uh, our clients that actually you do want to be in the press a little bit more. Where, you know, it used to be the exact opposite. People would say, I'll talk to anyone, anytime, anywhere, let's do it. Are we still seeing this drive towards every company wants to be seen as a tech company? That's a good question. Um, I, it's hard for me to answer because of the client base that I work with, but I will say that the clients that I work with are squarely in tech although they are trying to own something different. So I'll give you some examples. Um, Thor Trucks, which is a transportation lab in Los Angeles, while yes, they are a technology company and a battery maker, they are really dealing with mobility solutions. So what I'm seeing more of is tech companies trying to be relevant in other industries mm -hmm. and maybe not leaning so heavily into the tech, tech brand. So on a slightly different note, let's think about the Fortune 500 companies and, you know, as we just did, did a, a story in the Holmes Report about the challenges and the opportunities that Fortune 500 brands or companies have when talking about innovation and how, you know, some of our fast companies, most innovative companies, which used to be dominated by startups, those startups are now 10 years later like behemoths and dominate their industry or their sectors. Um, so, you know, when you counsel your your startup clients about, you know, about how to position their innovation versus a Fortune 500, what are the key differences? Well, I think from a startup standpoint, risk is already built in. And so you don't have to counsel them on like taking risks. They've already done that. What you need to do is explain to them that, you know, take that 50,000 foot view and start talking about now how does that become relevant to our everyday lives. From a Fortune 500, it's very different. I mean, a lot of the challenges that Fortune 500s are facing now has to do with hiring, and general brand awareness and risk mitigation, you need to counsel them to be a little more risky, be a little bit more transparent. Really show people what a day in the life would look like at your company. Um, you know, it's hard for an IBM to recruit against a self-driving car company. You know, for yeah. some demographics, IBM is more attractive, but that, those demographics are slowly, slowly disappearing. I mean, do you think, so, so there still is some built-in skepticism from, I guess, the, the, the public around an IBM versus, you know, like talking about innovation versus um, a, a startup? 
I think you just assume that the startup is innovating, because if not, then it's just going to fall flat on its face. From an IBM or any Fortune 500 company, actually, the more well-known you are, the more skepticism there is. Mm -hmm. Because people want to say, and I'm sure you're doing amazing things. I mean, look at Xerox Park in the 80s. They were doing some phenomenal things, but they didn't get the credit until 20 years later. And that's because Xerox didn't talk about things then. It was a closed-down system. No one was allowed to say anything. You know, they everything that they said was incredibly curated to the point where they lost all the benefit. But it's funny because in some ways, like, I feel like that the stealth mode approach is also in a way that, a way that companies will start getting people will start talking about them, like the more secretive you are. I mean, think about sure. Apple, right? I mean, the more secretive they are, the more people start talking about what they must be doing. You know, it must be just absolutely, you know, all, you know, society altering. Um, whereas it almost seems like with the Fortune 500, if you talk about it too much, people might start to think that you're just, you're, you're you know, all style, no substance. I completely agree. I think if you're a Fortune 500, you want to be very careful about the usage of the term. I think you also need to think about talking about your culture in an innovative way. I think that's probably more important is to say that this is built into our culture than we have this really cool discovery over here because what are the chances that everyone else is going to get to work on that? What are the chances that that's going to impact your life? Probably minimal. So if you focus too much on what you're actually doing versus the culture that you've created, I think it's to your detriment. So there's talking about your culture, which which I think there's a really good case for that. Um, but then what about just letting your customers tell the story? Because that's one of the things that came through in the piece that, that we did at the Holmes Report was we had a few um, spokespeople from larger Fortune 500 companies basically say that, well, we let our customers tell, talk about our innovation, and, and they're ultimately the judges of whether our innovation had you know, the impact that we intended it to. So, like, I mean, like, if you had to tier these things, I mean, what's most important? Is it talking about your innovative culture and how you empower employees to, to you know, take risks? Or is it um, letting the customers tell the story? I mean, if you can get the customers to tell a story, absolutely. If you have a company where, say, the government is the top sector, you probably need to talk about what a day in the life of mm -hmm. is. You know, um, Palantir is an incredibly successful company. They've taken some knocks in the media because no one completely knows what they do. Mm -hmm. And that's for all the right reasons, I suppose. Um, but I think for that type of company, it's important to say, hey, while I can't tell you everything, let me tell you what you're going to get. Let me tell you what we can do. I can promise you an interesting career. I can promise you complex projects. I can promise you peers who are incredibly intelligent, just like you are. You know, what, what am I getting uh, for that? So I, I agree with you. If you can get customers to talk, absolutely. There's a lot of cases where that's not an option, in which case you have to focus on your own culture. So going back to culture for a minute, I mean, it sounds like it's most effective for Fortune 500 to basically make the case that innovation is embedded at every tier of the organization from the top, from the very, very top all the way through. Um, but at the same time, we also saw a lot of sort of Fortune 500 companies sort of build out like innovation arms. Mm -hmm. And like it was almost like innovation was siloed or you know, assigned to a specific innovation center or something. Are we seeing less of that and are we seeing... Fortune 500 sort of take innovation and infuse it throughout the whole organization, or are we still seeing innovation sort of being a side um, unit? I think you're probably seeing both. Uh, most companies, most Fortune 500s will certainly have their own innovation arm. Some of them are integrated with the business. Some of them are not at all. 
Some of them are literally treated like research and development, go figure out what you find and we'll see what we do with it. Others are actually building out systems to be more innovative in product management or how they engage customers. You know, there's companies like Procter & Gamble who's doing a brilliant job of community building as an innovation project. That's, that's interesting. Um, and I think we'll, those are the ones that are probably the most successful. So my, my last question before we have to wrap up is, um, is telling the innovation story in this current news climate. Um, as we know, the news climate's been heavily dominated by, by politics um, and also things like the Facebook, you know, scandals that they've, they, they've encountered one after another. Um, how do you, I mean, what's it like to try to get a story to stand out right now? I think if you're trying to get a story to stand out, you're probably doing it for the wrong reasons. I think you have to do it because it's actually helping you with employee morale or customer morale or it's helping you elucidate the way that you think about something. If you're doing it purely for coverage, uh, you're not going to stand out and if anything, you're making yourselves prey to an investigative journalist who's saying that this isn't, this isn't reality. Okay, so just thinking about it for a minute, I mean, there are so many people that are probably listening to this that, that you know, every day they have, uh, they have their clients or, you know, their bosses saying to them, we need, you know, we, we want ink, we want ink, you know, this is a story, we, want, we, we need headlines. And especially for companies that don't have the awareness that the Fortune 500s do, for instance, like for them, like, I mean, just get, they just need people to have heard, right, to, to see their, their, their company's name in, in third-party media. Um, and what would you say to them? I mean, if, if, if they really genuinely feel like we, we, need, to, we need our story, we, we need our story to get to resonate, we need our story to, 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 to be seen by other people. Well, I think what I'd say is, one, we can't control the media. You can control yourself as a media entity. Every company should consider themselves the primary media vehicle for their company, their vision, for their product, its use case, their customers. I can't promise you that Fast Company is going to write. I can't promise that MIT Technology Review is going to write. I can't promise you when they do write what it's going to say. You can control what you put out yourself. So if you get in a regular cadence of putting things out that are authentic to you, that actually make a difference, eventually someone will come around to agree with you. And just know the more innovative you are, the longer that will probably take. You can ask Elon Musk. <laughs> Uh, well, fair, fair point. Well, Kyle, it's always, it's always interesting to talk innovation with you. And, uh, and I appreciate your taking the time to, 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 to be on the echo chamber. Well, thanks for having me on. All right, I am here with Mark Stoos. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Arthi. It's great to be here in San Francisco. Yeah, we're here at the Four Seasons. It's, it's decked out for the holidays. It looks great. Yes. Um, so, Mark, a couple of days ago, you and I saw each other, and we did a judging session for the 2019 Innovation Saber Awards North America. And I want to get your take on the caliber of, um, of entries. You know, what stood out to you? Any trends? Anything that you want to point out? You know, I think that, that it, you know, and it may be because of what I do for a living now and, and all that kind of stuff, right? But um, I think that the biggest thing that continues to kind of disappoint, um, and, and I think not just me, but, but other judges as well commented on this, was the lack of any business tie-in, the fact that ultimately uh, a, lot of, a, lot of the, uh, a 
lot of the submissions kind of took the attitude that, well, we got X number of hits or, you know, they had all these different kinds of metrics depending on the channel that was being discussed. Uh, and, and, uh, and that's it. And here's the handoff and that the value of that, the business impact of that, the financial value that's being created by all that really great work is, is kind of what they're essentially saying to the business is, uh, all that's up to you. We've done our part, right? And, and uh, if, you want, if, you know, if it's going to mean anything else, it's up to you. And I, and I think that that's such a mistake. I think that the, the industry continues to leave a lot of credit and a lot of money on the table. Yeah, and I think that, to your point, uh, we heard that reinforced by some other judges. And, you know, we've actually, as an organization, have been pretty big champions for impact, business impact. Um, you have. Uh, and, and so, and that's something that I say every year as we open up our award, you know, call for entries is there's, there's two things that we really look for with the innovation savers, at least, is the creative idea, some sort of innovation, doing, doing things differently but balancing that out with some sort of tangible impact that goes beyond, you know, we got this, we scored this hit in this publication, an impression. Um, and, uh, you know, I will say your particular session, we did run into more um, entries that lacked that impact. But, um, but, but... But I thought I, I thought I didn't go there very much. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. And 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 I, I on, a, on a more optimistic. Note, I didn't want to be that guy. <laughs> yeah, no, and and and, and, you, and you weren't in, in, your, right, in your particular yeah. session. We did run into a few categories where this was a bit more of a pervasive problem. Um, and if anybody asks me which categories they are, I will not say. So please don't send me a note asking that. Um, but I will say just on a more on a on a. On a more optimistic note, uh, several of the other categories did did do a much much better job of sort of rounding out that picture yeah. and giving some financial. Yeah, and I, in previous years, I mean, I've judged now quite quite a number of years. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it is you, you occasionally do get some really great stuff. Um, you know, there, guys, the idea of speak to the audience directly. Or there's there's you're you are doing great work. The creativity of the work, the creativity behind the campaigns is so good. That the big question that is still unanswered is kind of like the why you are doing what you are doing, and then what does it all mean? And 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 I think that is a huge opportunity. That's where we need to go next. And and that that is a great segue to talk about um, a survey that that Mark that your company Proof Analytics recently did. Right, where you uh, surveyed, I think it was four hundred senior business leaders. I think it was one hundred and sixty Fortune one thousand companies. Can you tell our readers a little bit about the survey? Yeah, we actually started it about 16 months ago, so all, almost a year and a half ago. Um, and the whole idea was to it was to take a very much of an outside-in point of view, and instead of doing what everyone does, which is go interview the CCOs, go interview the CMOs, and report back on how they feel about it. Um, we went to uh, Fortune 1000 C-suites, so by definition. All members of a C-suite, except for a marketing or a communications leader, and said, "Hey, you know, what do you think? Uh, how are you feeling about um, marketing and communications ability to, to prove value? Um, do you believe they have value? Kind of like intrinsically. By the way, all but one respondent said yes, absolutely, totally believe uh, there's tons of value." 
Um, but 96% of them said, but we have absolutely no confidence in their ability to demonstrate it, to get to that final answer. And honestly, the numbers were so shocking. The percentages is what I mean, were so shocking um, that you know, we, we kind of were sitting there going, okay, there's almost no survey that has these kinds of responses um, attached to them. And so we kept on going back and back and back. The re that's the reason why it took 16 months to do the survey. We kept on going back and back and back, trying to get to a more solid feeling about our own survey. Oh, okay, so, so let's go back. So 96% said that they don't have a lot of confidence in the marketing or communications to provide quantifiable business value around the efforts that they're doing. Um, define what quantifiable business value would look like to, 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 the, to the folks sure. who surveyed. So they care about revenue, margin, and cash flow impact, right? So from a marketing and communications point of view, the, the, the easiest way to kind of express this is they want to understand how you are making it possible for sales to sell more product to more customers faster and more profitably than sales could do if you were not around. So if marketing and, and communication cease to exist, right, what would be the loss, right, uh, of that? Not only immediately, but over time. Um, and so that's what they really want to understand um, because it's not that they're necessarily trying to take money away from marketing and communications. They want to understand where they are on the S-curve. So the S-curve is all about the law of diminishing returns, right? Where are you on this whole curve? Um, if you're low, which actually is good in this case, that means they can spend a whole lot more money with you and get a lot more value creation. And they want to know that because you're in competition with, uh, with all the other parts of the company, all the other parts of the enterprise, for a certain amount of money. And that's the only amount of money that they can really afford to spend in any given company. So one of the things I thought was interesting in the survey was you had mentioned that, that the folks you survey had said there have been multiple requests over recent years for this quantifiable, quantifiable business value. And when I talk to people in the industry, right, whether it's CCOs, CMOs, or agency leaders, they will tell you that they have been investing and have increasingly um, made their measurements more sophisticated. So can you explain what, where this gap where is? Where the gap is? Where the gap sure. is? Sure, yeah. So I think that a lot, the biggest part of it is, is that it's, uh, measurement is really important because that's what generates the data. Um, the foundational pieces um, that you need. And what has been happening is that most marketing and communications organizations have taken all that data and thrown it up into a really big, beautiful dashboard and shown it to their, to their C-suite thinking that they have answered the question. And then they are astonished when it becomes apparent that no, they have not answered the question. And in fact, everyone's still pretty frustrated. The missing link here is the analytics. So the business looks at this in terms of cause and effect. I spend a certain amount of money with communications uh, in this quarter, and at some future time, value is generated by that. Um, I want to under, or not. I want to understand what that relationship is, the strength of that correlation, and I want to understand how long it took to create that value. 
And I want to be able to do that at scale. I want to be able to look at all of those relationships because at the end of the day, attribution is about correlation. It is not about touch points. It is not about data in isolation. It's about correlation. So because this gap does still exist, um, how has this changed the way, for instance, marketing and communication teams are being managed or structured within an organization? Well, I mean, actually, we're seeing all kinds of different examples of this, but perhaps the most powerful one that I have right now is about a year ago in New York, I was meeting with a technology company, kind of mid-sized, um, and at the last minute, uh, the CFO invited herself, I've written about this on LinkedIn, invited herself to the meeting, and, uh, and I was sitting there you know, presenting, and the marketing team, the CMO, and everybody else was being very, very nice, but generally were deflecting um, what I was trying to say. And finally, the CFO stopped the meeting and looked at the CMO and said, do you even believe in what you do for a living? And, which was obviously a meeting killer, right? I mean, the meeting ceased to happen after that. I think so. yeah, right, yeah, right, <laughs> pretty much. Um, and so then, you know, I guess it was uh, right after Christmas, um, I get a call from her, from the CFO, um, and she said, I think we were ready to move forward. And I said, great, I'll call the CMO. And she said, no, you won't because she doesn't work here anymore. Um, and every, uh, that, for the next 18 months, that marketing organization is reporting into finance. And it's not because finance wants to define creativity or muck about with their programs and all this kind of stuff. It is, in their mind, it is all about retraining the marketing and communications teams to think like business people. So, so you, men you mentioned this in the survey, right, that there's a trend that you're noticing as financial departments are being asked to assume control over marketing performance. Much or get really involved. Yes, or, yeah. get, or get really involved. So this is one example that you cite. How right. pervasive is it at this point? Well, according to our survey, right, it's, I think it, I'm doing this from memory right now, but it's 40-odd percent of the respondents talked about the fact that it was in some place in the conversation, right? Um, I'm sure in some of those cases it was early, early days kind of conversation, uh, some far more mature, but this was C-suite level conversation or board level conversation about this issue. And the main reason for it um, is that these companies are spending a lot of money uh, in these areas and they see it as really important, uh, you know, marketing and comms are a multiplier on the value that is created by sales. So they look at it as the whole go-to-market envelope, here's all this money, what's the best way to split it up so that we get the right synergies between marketing, communications, sales, and you know, anything else like professional services that you want to throw in there. So if there is a lack of confidence amongst amongst um, C-suite professionals outside of PR and marketing um, to hand over the reins of measurement analytics to have you know, CCOs, CMOs. Why not, I mean, why don't they just come up with a metric themselves? I mean, like, like, just like you're citing, come up with a metric them, themselves and then, and then, have, and then push, that down, push that top down. Well, I think that that is, in, in point of fact, happening because uh, the frustration levels have gotten so high. And, you know, when I started in this business a long time ago, what we always said to people was, hey, you know what, it's intangible, it just can't be measured. 
Well, no one believes that anymore, right? So, you know, data, you know, the, the analytics, actually, the algorithms um, to understand the cause and the effect on all this have been around for a very, very long time. It's very standardized data science. There's nothing new about that under the sun. But the data to feed the algorithms has only been around really for like the last six or seven years um, in most organizations. And so, but now that it is, everyone knows that the, that the loop has been closed and it's time to do it. I think that they, they believe, and again, this, I'm not making a comment about the fairness or unfairness of this, right? They believe that either marketing and communications teams don't know how to do it, um, so, and they, they lack the native capability and capacity to do it, or they don't want to, to do it. Um, we tend to see a lot of that. There's kind of you know, this idea of, you know, everyone talks about FOMO. Well, there's also FOFO, which is the fear of finding out. Um, we took that straight out of the healthcare industry. So I think that, that is, that's really the answer is um, lack of native ability in some cases, lack of will. Right, mm -hmm. but because because it's not being there isn't it's not being created. I mean, this specific metric um, that it seems this elusive metric, mm -hmm. where there's a tremendous demand for it's not being created by the finance teams, nor is it being created by the marketing and comms teams. Which makes me wonder if nobody knows how to actually measure this. And I know that you know what one of the mm -hmm. things you're doing is trying to fill that gap and trying mm -hmm. to provide something tangible around it. But, I, but because, I mean, I've been now covering this industry for over a decade, and this conversation that you and I are having mm -hmm. is one that has been... Absolutely. Right. I mean, I've been having this conversation in different ways for... I've been working on it myself for 15 right. years. Yeah. And, I mean, you and I have been having these conversations yep. for five years now. Absolutely. Um, and the fact that there's still... Every, everyone seems to be passing the buck to the next person, right? Finance is saying, well... I need I need my marketing and comms team to figure this out. Our, the agencies are saying I need I need my client to give me data. I mean, everybody I talked to has said, well, the reason we don't we haven't been able to do it is we don't have this, and it needs to be provided by the other person. Correct. So I mean, clearly there's something is something is missing, right? Right. That everyone is absolutely to have. there is a lot of buck passing. I mean, mm -hmm. one of the ways that I can actually talk about this is we haven't we have not published it yet, but we have we're almost finished with a. A report on the top 100 agencies um, in the, in North America on this issue, and and we have structured it a lot like a Gartner Magic Quadrant, um, you know, and and so the the two main axes are sort of like the vision and the will and all that kind of stuff on one end, and the ability to execute on the other. Um, what you see a lot of is that well, so out of that hundred, there's about six or seven that are uh, in the upper right hand quadrant in different places. Most of them are concentrated in the lower two quadrants because they have accumulated a lot of the building blocks, all the, you know, they have a tech stack, but as many of the, of the agency um, analytics leaders will tell you privately, there's no organizational level mandate to say, guys, we are now going to do this on every account, right? Um, there's no will to do it, um, and so consequently, you have all this, but you have no will. Are you are you are you talking about age, is this agency or in house? Talking about agencies right now, but but I think that also you you know where you really see it on the in house side. Well, comms is is much further behind 
on this than marketing is, sure. right? Marketing has a tech stack. A lot of times they don't know how to really deploy it correctly and, and to deliver what the business wants to see. So they are deploying a tech stack based on the, what they want to see, but not what the business wants to see. Most communications uh, teams, though, on the, on the in-house side don't, I mean, they're, they're doing measurement of the, t of, the, of the type that we were all doing 15 years ago. Well, let's talk then about some, some of the quality of this data. And one of the things you and I have talked about previously is how audience, the audience data that, that oftentimes communications professionals are working off of is, is really flawed compared to, say, a political um, yeah. campaign, right? Yeah. So they can get really, really granular around um, mm -hmm. who they are, they're targeting. And, and I'm seeing this in the award entries as well, right, where you, you know, there's an audience targeting section and they'll say, busy millennial moms, right? I mean, these really broad, generic categories that don't instill a ton of confidence around their mm -hmm. ability to really know who they're talking to or who they're targeting. Um, so I'd love to hear your take on, on the quality of data, audience data, that the communications industry is working off of and whether that... V you know, as a general statement, and there, there are definitely exceptions on both the in-house and the agency side, but as a general rule... Um, Audience under uh, data that helps you understand your real impact on your audience, where your audience is, and how you are moving them to a different place of belief and behavior, um, is non-existent in most situations. Um, there's a lot of proxy metrics we can talk about. You know, obviously on awareness, everyone knows about impressions. Let me just tell you, impressions are a lie. They're just a lie. They are fake. They are not real. You should not be using them. It is a joke. I think, right? I think you just gave us our headline for this podcast. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, so it, it is, um, you know, coming out of politics, and this is a long time ago for me, but, you know, in, uh, we were constantly polling, constantly polling. Even back then, we were constantly polling. We wanted to know what a candidate, you know, said, what they did, how did that impact the propensity of that audience to vote for them. And oh, by the way, even though there's a lot of great stuff about around personalization and customization of marketing and communications, you are still after a population-wide effect. And again, I will use politics as a great example of this, right? You have to, get, candidate knows that he has to go out or she has to go out and win every vote that they, that they get. And yet, it is the total aggregate number of votes that either puts them into office or doesn't. Um, and so what you're constantly trying to figure out if you're on the campaign is what can we do that will positively affect the greatest number, the greatest percentage of that population at one time? They, I mean, to the point about, I mean, polling's expensive, and, and we know what it costs to run a political campaign these days. Mm -hmm. And I can already hear... I mean, most most campaigns, most most communications campaigns, right? They use existing data to make their decisions, right? They, they're not doing original research. Most of them, some of them are. Some of them with really big budgets can do some original research on their core audience. Mm -hmm. But most are looking at historical yeah, historical numbers. data and working backwards and saying, mm -hmm. okay, you know, millennials want want their brands to have mm -hmm. a point of view. Okay, um, 
But then I think very few are able to actually, and I mean, I'm sure like Nike could do this, but not everyone has that kind of budget, where once they you know, launch a campaign is to constantly be surveying their core audience in terms of so, how they're So in practical terms, right, if you're an agency or on the client side, there's a certain catch-22 in this, right? Because if you say, well, we can't afford it, then when it comes time to justify the spend, you can't. So then they cut it, or they hold you flat, right? And then you really can't afford it. So there's a certain, this is almost like buying a house in San Francisco, right? You, you've got to bite the bullet at some point and get on the, the escalator, sure. so to speak, right? Yes. And, and, and you're just, you're going, man, this sucks. I can barely afford this. I'm just about to die, right? Um, but then you get the benefit of the appreciation, and that helps you lever up into your next house and so on and so forth. It's very similar um, when you were talking about measurement and analytics, because if you can prove it, then they're going to give you a lot more money. And thus, the percentage of what you spend on measurement analytics gets to be smaller and smaller and smaller of your total budget. But if you don't invest ahead of the, all this, we, we have all seen, guys, we've all seen what is happening. The agencies, you look at top 100 agencies, top line, flat to down, We've never seen them less profitable than they are today. It's catastrophic, right? Lots of lots of client churn, lots and lots of talent churn. This is not a indicative of a stable industry, um, and so it's not just comms; it's also marketing. So, so if you if you're if you're an agency leader, what what would be the takeaway that they should take from this podcast? What's something they can implement and do? You already have, in many cases, not all agencies, but many of them already have a lot of the tech stack, and you have the basic talent necessary to help you begin to implement. Um, you need to invest more in that. I mean, if you look at, I'm just going to call out some names because they're, it's really important. If you look at Allison and Partners, you look at W2O, um, you look at Weber Shanwick, um, these are all companies, all agencies who have really committed to it, right? Um, and, and their results are showing it, their financial results, their win rates are showing it. Um, what does commit to it mean? Commit to it means saying to your account teams, every last one of you is going to do a minimal amount, this kind of baseline level of measurement and analytics, period. This is baked into the price. You don't have a choice. You can't redline it. Your client can't redline it. It's just there. Um, that's what it's going to take. Otherwise, you you know you're lead, you continue to leave all this money on the table, and that's the money you need to come back to life, so to speak, financially speaking, right? So all right. So then now, if you are uh, CCO, CMO. What's a takeaway that you can implement relatively quickly? Um, I think that you have to bring in people who have already done this, who have already seen this, right? The, the Kit Carsons of the, of, the, of the world, so to speak, have already been to California, have led a couple of wagon trains there. Um, you have to bring people like that in that can, that can say very prescriptively, this is what stage one looks like. This is what stage two looks like. This is what stage three looks like. And I think you also have to realize that you have to really step out of your comfort zone, 
really talk to your CFO and your finance teams and say, what do you want to see? What do you really care about? When I started doing this, I was on, on the brand side as a CCO and a CMO. And one of the things that my teams and I realized early on was that if it didn't work for finance, if it didn't work for the business, it wasn't going to work for us either. And that's really, if we've had any success at all in this, it is largely because of that perspective. We have completely, we just always come back, that's the North Star that we come back to, is, is this working for the business? Do the preponderance of CFOs and CEOs and board members look at this and say, okay, you know what? Not only do I find that credible and believable, but I'm actually willing to make material business decisions based upon this analytics. I think that's that's what it's all about. All right, Mark. So to end, let's let's travel back to your CCO days. How did you deliver this this value? How did you show the value of what you were doing to your CEO when you were CCO? Well, it was a, it was very much of a of a journey, right? I mean, we didn't just spring at like Athena out of Zeus's head, fully formed, right? Um, but I was very fortunate in the sense that Mark Hurd at HP got me started with the right perspective about this. And Bob Wayman, who's now retired, but he was the CFO of HP, he also contributed a great deal. And then Bob Beecham, the CEO of BMC Software, really got behind this and gave us a tremendous amount of support, not just in terms of budget money and, if you will, R&D dollars on this, right? But it was really about um, guiding us, helping us understand what he needed, what Steve Solcher, the CFO of BMC, needed. And we had gotten to the point where, I guess it was 20, you know, 2009, 2010. I mean, this is really the reason why I ended up being the CMO of Honeywell Aerospace. And I got even more feedback. I mean, that was like the ultimate proof of concept for this whole system because it was such a complicated business. So I think that that um, the way that I did it, and my teams did it, because it was not even close to just me, was that we just really listened a lot and we said, okay, how can we take existing data science and existing approaches and that the, the business leaders already know and they already find credible, and how can we apply those to this problem? Mm -hmm. All proof is today is the automation of a lot of that work. So, when is so you, you did this survey? Um, what kind of research is coming out next? You said you have the agency list, the, the hundred agency list. Yeah, we have the hundred agency list, and and I'm sure that people are going to be upset um, uh, on some of that and not on other parts of that. When is uh, that? When is that coming out? Um, well, it, we keep on kicking it down the road because. Um, we keep on kind of refining it. We want to be accurate. We want to give everybody every opportunity to make their case. Um, so I would say right now, given the holidays and everything, it's probably coming out in mid-January time okay. um, You know, the other thing that's going on is, is, is uh, IPR. So you may or may not know about IPR, but it's the Institute for Public Relations. Um, we just had a meeting of the commissioners, and we created a new committee. It's the Special Committee on ROI. Uh, I am the chairman of that committee, um, and uh, about half of the committee is CFOs and CEOs. These are all people of name and stature 
Um, you know, we're not talking about somebody in Omaha, Nebraska, right? Um, oh, our, our, our listeners in Omaha, Mark. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, the Oracle of Omaha probably is not real happy with me uh, right now. But um, so, you know, these are, these are real serious players, and the whole mission of this uh, committee is, uh, is, to, is to say, okay, from an outside-in point of view, from a business-first point of view, what is a framework um, that people can take to the bank that they can that is flexible enough to where they can customize it, rigid enough where it is a standard that they have to adhere to, um, instructions about how to instrument the different parts of the framework, and then how do you move forward from there? Okay, well, it sounds like we might have to have another conversation. Maybe we'll do that one live from Omaha. That's the least we could do. The least I think. we could do, right? <laughs> <laughs> once once <laughs> this comes out. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Mark, and uh, lots of lots of good stuff here. And I'm sure this is a conversation that we will that will that will keep going. Thank you, Arthi. And that wraps up another episode of the Echo Chamber. Thank you so much to our guests, Kyle Ortega and Mark Stuse. Thank you so much for Marketeers for their production help, and thank you so much to our sponsor, The Bullet Group. And we will be back soon with another episode. You've been listening to the Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Today.